Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Wolfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm honored to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Sticks Hooper, founding drummer and last surviving member of what in my mind is the greatest jazz funk fusion band of all time, the Crusaders. Originally known as the Jazz Crusaders, along with other primary members, Joe Sample on keys, Wilton Felder on sax and bass, and Wayne Henderson on trombone, the group released more than 30 albums between 1961 and the early 1980s that were loaded with brilliant, soulful, and funky jazz fusion. Having also recorded solo albums and worked with myriad stars through the years like Quincy Jones, B.B. King, The Rolling Stones, Elton John, Nancy Wilson, Grover Washington Jr., Marvin Gaye, and Eric Clapton. Styx is now in his seventh decade of music making, and he remains quite active, having last November begun hosting the radio show Laid on the Line on KKJZ Radio in L.A., and he'll soon release new music. Styx, how are you? Welcome. Well, I'm doing fine. Uh, Scott, it's, it's uh, nice to be here, nice to be seen. And um, and actually, I hope that we have a good interview and I hope that people will appreciate what we're trying to do. And I hope they appreciate what you're trying to accomplish. Well, thank you so much. You know, I'm a fan, as we were talking before we went on air for, for so long, back to the 70s. And I wanted you on the show for a long time. So it's a big thrill for me. And I know viewers are going to be thrilled with it, too. So thank you. 
Okay, well, you are certainly welcome. So let's go away and have some fun here and let's exchange some thoughts, ideas, and see what can happen in terms of our communication as a new term as we chat, but as I would say, as we have a conversation. Yeah, we'll try not to get in too much trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, uh, Sticks, where are you coming to us from today? I'm in the Seattle, Washington area, a suburb of Seattle. I've been uh, aboding up here for the past uh, 10 to 15 years, Uh, even though I've been doing extensive traveling. I go back down to Southern California quite often because a lot of the recording facilities are are there, there. And I won't go so far to say they're much better, but there's so many of them. And also many of my friends and a lot of the musicians and some of the things and engineers that I want to uh, accomplish are in LA. I spent time there. And I also, um, even though I uh, reside here and I go down to Los Angeles a lot and also across the pond, you know, I've, I've recorded some things in Europe, Japan, uh, and all over. And, uh, you know, music, as I've stated many times, is universal. So, I mean, you can play a note in uh, Tokyo. It's the same note in Rio de Janeiro. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get a sense of your international travels behind you with some of the uh, things in the picture. So that's very cool. Oh, yeah. yeah that's a few of the things. Yes, so that's, a, that's a few of the things uh, that I've done and, you know, want to continue to do as long as I'm above the soil. You know? Absolutely. Um, so sticks, you know, you guys uh, got together back in the '50s. It's amazing what a long, incredible, prodigious career. Um, I think you came together in high school. Is that right? With the, with the other guys? That is true. We were in high school together, and uh, it was uh, myself, uh, Hubert Laws, uh, Joe Sample, uh, Wilton Felder, and Wayne Henderson. And uh, we worked because the music program there in, in high school was incredible. And we were also part of a, a big band that they had. That was part of the music curriculum. And uh, music, the music curriculum in, in Texas and at this particular school we went to, Phyllis Wheatley, was just re- remarkable. And, and I think in those days, public schools and public education was, was much more profound. Um, and so that's where we got started. And actually, we were called the Modern Jazz Sextet. And we had a bass player by the name of uh, Henry Wilson. And uh, because I was a leader, I guess I became the nominal leader. I guess I always had those aspirations. Maybe it's the Leo astrology in me, but uh, it was my real name, which is Nesbert Hooper and the Modern Jazz Sextet. And they allowed that or let me be, you know, uh, keep that image. And that's what it was. And we became very, very popular in the, in the Houston area. And uh, we were doing quite well. It, but because we were playing jazz in the per se, as opposed to the environment, which was primarily rhythm and blues, or you might call it pop music, uh, we thought that we were kind of shackled to a degree. And that's what we decided. Uh, and I convinced the guys, let's, go, let's try to go into Los Angeles. And we knew that that was a jazz, uh, considerable kind of a jazz mecca, probably not as much as uh, New York. But uh, being from the South, it was kind of a strange shoot for us to, to go to New York because we all had front yards, you know, so <laughs> we weren't ready to put us walk out onto the sidewalk. Too much and culture so, shock. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was kind of a culture shock. And, uh, but we were sure, certainly inspired by the music and the musicians in there. I mean, and I don't want to name them all, but I'm sure if, if we get in a conversation 
many people inspired us. Of course, I was inspired by Art Blake as a drummer and all and all those things. But we decided to go to the West Coast. And ironically, it was really weird because we all took our individual cars. And a lot of people still wonder how I could convince or we could be convinced and come to a consensus that we would all drive individually to go to, to the land of more or less unknown and not knowing what was going to happen. And we had relatives there, so at least we had a place possibly that we could land for a moment until we could either get a job or get something happening, you know. So we came to the West Coast, and I must say it was unfortunate in some degrees because when we came to the West Coast, we knew it was another jazz mecca. But I'm being very profound in saying West Coast jazz was literally White Coast jazz at that point in time. And 99% of all the musicians that were successful were white musicians or Caucasian or what you want to call it, or, or the Indians call them pale face people. Um, but uh, that's where we were and uh, we, we spent time and we worked. It was very difficult. We could not get a record contract there. And, and so because of we had brought my music stands which had NH on them, we, became, we said, let's try to do something with these stands and try to get a gig in a club or something. And so we, we put our minds together. We became the Nighthawks because of NH on the stands. And because we had such a rhythm and blues, jazz, I mean, jazz influence, dance music, pop music inspiration and background, we were able to uh, get a really, really nice job six nights a week that paid us very well as the Nighthawks. And the Nighthawks were very, very famous. That was way before the Jazz Crusaders or whatever. For a couple of years, we did that. And uh, so that's, that's part of the history of what happened uh, during that time period in California. Uh, however, uh, we were getting disappointed because we really wanted to be into a much more creative world of jazz. And, but to still, there was no outlet. And there was another Texas friend who just happened to have a connection with one of the leading jazz labels there, which was Pacific Jazz. And uh, he knew Richard Bach. And uh, he said, why don't you at least listen to these guys, even though, like I said, 90% of, or 99% of the artists on that label were, were white musicians. So we packed up our stuff. We were working in, at that part of time, and we'd moved to Las Vegas to work in an, in the New Frontier Lounge because the Nighthawks were very popular. People enjoyed us, what we were doing. We said, let's pack up and go back to LA and see if we can at least do uh, an audition for that Curtis had set up. And uh, figuratively speaking, we blew Richard Bach up against the wall because the band was so tight. We just played a couple of jazz things that he couldn't believe the spontaneity and the instant creativity. And that was in the day, you know, when, you know, there was no two track, I mean, five track overdubbing, all that stuff. And the band just hit it right away. And he, he signed us to a contract and me with a certain amount of business acumen, um, I um, signed the contract and we became artists on the Pacific Jazz label. And I believe that we were, we went through back, I guess history might be different. The first uh, African-American artist on that label. And uh, the sticks, that was like 1960? Uh, close to 1960. I don't know the exact time, but it was around that time period. And uh, then the jazz the, and how it came from the Nighthawks. And then how are we going to become a, a jazz group called the Nighthawks? So uh, we uh, came up with some ideas. 
And because, again, with the inspiration and the influence of the, the uh, musicians at that time, there was no leader out front. It was called the Jazz Messengers or whatever. And so we wanted to come up with something that, that put one leader out front. So we said, what about the, uh, we're thinking of different tiles. And we came up with the Jazz Crusaders. And uh, that's, that was the, the band that became relatively you know, popular around the world as the Jazz Crusaders. And we definitely, I would say, we almost initiated or started the um, situation that happened with uh, re recording without having to do overdubs and, and, and those kind of tracking because we could record on two track. We went to a place called the, the Lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, California. We were booked there once by Howard Rumsey, who became a fan. And he, he, I think, in terms of, was shocked, and so was his crew, that we could go in and record an entire album without no rehearsing or saying we, we got to fix this because it was only the small uh, tape in those days. And if you didn't get it anyway, you'd have to do the whole thing over. But every track, it was tra it was take one, and that was, that was it. And we did several albums like that and set that standard for uh, instant recording. Wow. And that record... Um... 62 right the the first lighthouse yeah yeah the the first we did uh, several though but, yeah yeah uh, the first one was 62 yeah um, and the wow that's an amazing story six what what can you tell us about um you know the guys in the group in terms of you know um what were they like personality wise and what do you think were their best talents well that's a good question let me see if i can be succinctly composite about this uh, Joe was uh, more or less a, more of a musical focused kind of a guy beside an extra keyboardist and uh, composer. And his personality was relatively mild. As a matter of fact, if you look on, uh, on my website, when we were, we were in, uh, in African Zaire, you could see he was the only one who was a little bit more subdued and I was the one who was a little bit more aggressive and, and gregarious. So that was Joe. He was very introspective but you, we all were very, very, very good friends, you know. So I'm just trying to give you an idea of personalities. Uh, Wayne Henderson was uh, a little bit more overt and uh, he had um, a different approach to how he looked at life. Um, and just, he really concentrated on, again on composing and wanted to be one of the best trombonists in the world, which he became. And uh, he was very good at that. And uh, so that was his personality. And we were, again, we were all friends. And of course we had our differences and everybody, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't eat the same uh, crumb cake, cake or the same bagel, but I mean, we were, we were all good in, with that. But that's a, that kind of a short version of their personality. Wilson was more of the introvert kind of person. And uh, he was very, uh, I guess for lack of a synonymous word, clinical from the standpoint, he would really analyze it to the nth degree of what this note is supposed to be and, and what the inflection is supposed to be on this note. And he played tenor sax just as well as he played bass. In fact, he became eventually, I guess you probably know, one of the most important bass players on the West Coast. And a lot of people's careers would not be, uh, would, have man would not have manifested themselves without his playing the bass. And, and in fact, he almost, pretty much laid down the whole foundation for Barry White's career by playing those bass lines. Uh, so he was a bassist. And, and at that time, it did 
we had gotten into uh, overdubbing. So sometimes he would lay down a bass line and we would overdub some of his sax solos because he couldn't play them, of course, simultaneous, you know. And uh, so that was when the transition started happening with multi-tracking and, and all those things. Have you ever encountered another player that uh, was good on bass and sax? Because that's pretty unusual to, to play a horn and a string instrument. You know, that's an interesting question too. Not that I am aware of. I'm sure that there are, but uh, I, don't, I don't know of any anyone that that, that that particular combination of instruments. I'm not really sure. Uh, in fact, that's going to require me now to do some research because I like to be knowledgeable about things and acquire information. That's an interesting question. But I know that people double on instruments, but not necessarily, like you say, a saxophone and whatever. And at that time, uh, Hubert, who was with me, he had left the band because he got a scholarship to go to Berkeley. And uh, back to what we said when we were in high school, he was a, a sax player. Played alto in the in the big band. Maybe you can we can I'll have my associate send you some pictures. And he was uh, playing alto in the band. He didn't even play flute. So I think he he thought he would be able to experiment with it. And I think we kind of chipped in and bought him a flute as another additional instrument when we were in high school. I'm I'm, I'm jump back a few years. And uh, of course, you know, he became one of the greatest flautists in the world, a flutist, if you will. I mean, he is just incredible. And if you also look on my website where I did a thing live in LA where he played, played piccolo, which is a very difficult instrument to improvise on and even to play. And you can note the, the rest of the musicians on the stand were looking at him as if he was the, they were not the part of the band, but you were looking at him as he was the performer, you know? Uh, so he was an incredible musician. And those are the, and the, the guy I told you, Henry Wilson went back to Texas um, uh, during the first maybe couple of weeks when we were the Nighthawks, he went back and I'm, again, I'm, I'm vacillating time. And he became a, a band leader in Houston playing a lot of the local things and he never came back to California. Didn't have the pivotal point that we had as the Jazz Crusaders or the, or the Crusaders. That's Henry Wilson, Lala Wilson. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit, thank you for that. Can you talk a little bit to the chemistry that you guys had? Because it was just incredible. Um, you know, I feel like you guys maybe knew what the other guys were going to do ahead of time or something. You know, you were so locked in. Yeah, that's an interesting question too. But I think that's part of the spontaneity and camaraderie of jazz. Uh, you know, being able to be spontaneous. And if I can, you know, just use that figure and a lot of times this chant and response is sometimes used in that, in that phrase. And just, and if I can do that corny thing, if you say, you know, the other guy's going to say bop bop without you saying it, you know, and uh, we just had that kind of uh, spontaneous, spontaneous kind of a feeling in terms of both inflections and, and the dynamics of the music. And it was just, it was, it was unusual because even with bands that were organized, whether it was, you know, Hard Silver's group or whatever, who of those guys of a group, you know, that were organized, they did a little bit more rehearsing than we did. Our rehearsing was just to formulate a, a, a kind of a plan on, on a record, but not to keep tightening and tightening and tightening until, no, you should have played this note on this note, or you, because everybody pretty much were uh, inherent on what they were supposed to do. So the way you asked that question, it was unusual. And I haven't encountered that too much with uh, many other people. Yeah, well, I mean, they talk about chemistry with somebody like the Beatles, you know, that collectively they were so, you know, the sum of the parts kind of thing. 
Yeah, right. And, uh, yeah. Right. That's another good example. And in fact, I was talking, uh, of course, you know, Ringo, I got a chance to know him and uh, also Paul McCartney. Uh, we recorded, speaking of The Lighthouse, we made his song into an instrumental. Uh, and it became a very, very big instrumental for us. Uh, all of a sudden, I had a senior moment of thinking. El Eleanor Rigby. Uh, Rigby. Yeah, I had to think for you. Yeah. Eleanor Rigby. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was very interesting. And for, we didn't know anything about the story or the genesis of that song, except we just kind of liked the melody. And we put a kind of a Texas groove on it. And Joe played the S out of it. And uh, it was really a lot of fun. So, yeah, and speaking of bands, that's true. Uh, the Beatles were um, definitely, uh, you know, uh, that kind of a unit that was unified. Uh, and, and like with the Rolling Stones to a point, um, they, they were like that. And of course, they, they also refer to their influence with the African-American experience. And they, they were saying that they, they, about um, getting into uh, James Brown and that whole feeling of music, which was part of their inspiration. Uh, and so that, that was a good thing. And uh, my, my friend who just passed away from the Rolling Stones, uh, you know, it was really, really sad, but he would like to play and it was kind of interesting because he was one of the few drummers with, with a, a rock kind of band, he would call it, that just had a small kit and didn't have a whole room full of drums playing them at the same time. And we would talk about that. And he uh, uh, loved jazz too, because he, when he got off the, the big gates and the big stadiums, uh, he would go out to a jazz club to, to, uh, to listen and hang out, you know? And uh, so that was, that was great for him too. Yeah, Charlie Watts always seemed like an unlikely rock star, you know, more, yeah, like, a, yeah. more like a jazz guy. Yeah, and he loved it, you know, but uh, like, unfortunately, even as we speak today, jazz doesn't pay as high a rent as if you can sell out a 50,000 street, uh, street stadium of 30,000. It, it just is never reached that level. And in some ways, it's, it's probably good because the sonority is not the same. Uh, and so, uh, but yes, and there are other musicians and I, we can, if we get into that conversation, that would go out to listen, uh, not necessarily rock musicians, uh, that were playing well, it was somewhat lucrative of what they were doing to earn a living, living would to go out to jazz clubs to hear jazz musicians because they were so inspired. I know that Stan's Getz was one of them for sure. And uh, used to work with those bands and ironically, the king of jazz, and I repeat that, the king of jazz was Paul Whiteman. Are you ready for that? <laughs> And so uh, well, I was joking with that in the studio the other day, but he would have to play in the, you know, the country club set, you know, the two-step, whatever they would do. He would go out and hang and learn. And then he, had, he was inspired to pl play jazz and he was an incredible musician. And then also he assimilated the, the, the uh, Brazilian thing too in, mm. into his repertoire. But he was always searching for that other means of expression than they're sitting there reading the part one and a two and a three out of it. I wanted to, uh, you know, there's so much um, to attempt to get into sticks, but I wanted to uh, sort of, you know, focus a little bit more on the like 70 on stuff, uh, just because I think more viewers are into the more funkier stuff uh, that mm -hmm. you guys got into. Mm -hmm. So, um, but before I move away from the Jazz Crusaders in the 60s, I did want to ask you if there are one or two uh, performances or experiences that just really stand out for whatever reason from that era, you know, um, I don't know if maybe you performed for royalty, maybe it was a huge crowd, maybe your drums fell off the stage, whatever. 
That's a really interesting thing. When we were the Jazz Crusaders, speaking of the drums falling off the stage, that was an incident in Tokyo, Japan, where I was playing uh, my drums and I was an endorser of, uh, of at that time, uh, WFL drums and Ludwig. And I was playing a concert and we were doing a, a split show wherein the show was uh, the first segment and the second segment. And the, there was a sold-out hall, that I think at Kosanenkin Hall, I kept trying to remember. And you're talking about an incredible experience because the, the Crusaders and the Jazz, the Jazz Crusaders was so popular, very famous and appreciated in Japan. So as we were doing this show, I, uh, a Japanese guy came up and spoke to the road manager, who happened to also be my uh, manager. I'm not manager, but the uh, road uh, guy that took care was my brother. And... Uh, he asked him, and I'm trying to speak somewhat in the dialect, could Mr. Hooper play my drum? And uh, he had this drum in his hand and brought it to the stage because he was appreciative of what I was doing. We were playing funk and grooving and all the stuff and the audience was going crazy. And it was in between sets. And so he was told that, no, he can't do that because his kid is already set up and wouldn't be able to put it on there. But the gentleman was so nice and so appreciative till I told uh, my, my brother, okay, get the drum, set it up there, and I'll play at least one or two tunes in respect for him. So this is a true story. And so when we got into one of those funk grooves with a hard two and four backbeat, I hit that drum, and most of it went out into the audience and it flew all up into <laughs> to the second arena. And he, not only was he embarrassed, I think he probably lost a couple of feet in stature, but uh, <laughs> uh, they, he was, it, was, it was shocking. So they had to set my drums up. And so I, the, I remember the person was almost in tears, but they picked me up, they asked me, would I please come and tell them how to make drums a little bit better? And they picked me up in a, in a limo the next day and asked me would I go because I had a day off. And I went out to a little uh, suburb of Tokyo called Chiba, Japan. And there was a, the ladies, and you look on my website, wearing kimonos and all that stuff, making drums. But they were making them, you know, with, with craftsmanship and all that, but they didn't have all of the knowledge of what, what the sonorities should be and all that stuff. So I sat there and told them some things to do, and it became Pearl Drums, which is Shinju in, in Japan. And uh, th that launched their, the drum uh, manufacturer of Pearl, to, to get going and they became a big drum manufacturer. I had a, a lot of input in that and they were just made in Japan. Now they have a, 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 a subsidiary office in, uh, in Nashville. So that's the truth. That was a, like one of the funny stories. There are many other stories, but I'm just sure focusing on that because I know you have limited time and so do I, but there were other many, many things that were crazy that, that I've, I've done. In fact, back to Charlie Watts, we were playing with the Rolling Stones in Boston Gardens and, uh, you know, we opened the show for what to open the show. And I wanted to prove something to the people that you don't have to have a heavy backbeat, you know, through a speaker that's going to blow your head away. So I went up to the microphone with finger cymbals. I don't know you know what that is and played yeah. a nice backbeat just with the groove and everything. And the, and the audience was rocking just for that because the intensity and, and that was, before, you know, and, the, and the, the locked in of the it was the feeling. 
you know so it's that like was a lot of funny. indian a lot of indian music uses those i think yeah yeah so anyway that that was just that's kind of a funny experience and i remember we laughed about that in china like we laughed about that <laughs> even though he didn't come out with a kit a massive kit in fact eventually i had a massive kit because pearls provided me with things with all kind of because i like to play tune drums in fact i recorded a thing uh, uh with tune drums you know uh jasmine breeze i don't really ever heard that and on my solo album and i actually tuned the drums as part of the melodic content and so pearl got into that and they gave me a full if you look on some of my websites or whatever you can see my kid is is vast you know yeah like a rocker yeah wow it's interesting history on pearl thanks for sharing that Mm -hmm. um so it was around 1970 when there was a definite change in you know the music that you guys were doing and more funk and soul getting mixed into the the jazz um was that mostly a direct result of Stuart Levine getting involved or what what transpired no Stuart Levine uh just happened to get involved because we needed a producer uh the way the way you phrase it no uh we wanted to become the crusaders and we needed a, a producer uh and uh he was a good friend of uh, Hugh Masekela and they had a, a, a group together. And we thought that he would be nice to, to, to get involved with what we were doing. But the transition was primarily uh, predicated on the fact that people would, well, we became the crusaders and the jazz groups playing the funk because uh, we wanted to get back to more of our roots to say that you can still play uh, great harmonics over a nice groove without always swinging spang and uh and get back to some of our roots, you know, for, for, of, with the hard beats and the, the heavy bass drum and all that stuff. And we would, we would try to go into that. In fact, oh, I remember joking with my, my young friend, Roy Haynes. He said, I'm gonna steal your foot. You got the biggest foot in the world, you know? <laughs> and that's what, so we thought that was uh, part of what we wanted to do. And, 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 it, and it opened up to eventually to a term called jazz fusion. But uh, we just wanted to show the jazz of creativity can, it does not have to be in a certain formulae kind of a swing mode, which was traditional during that, uh, that particular time period. And then so other musicians joined in and modified it. And like I said, jazz fusion and jazz became, uh, like, and I, as I said, we're doing that to funk and we would want to do that. But then uh, genre specification and, mar- and marketing became at the forefront of all of that. And I thought that I was going to bowl over and thought I have to go get a chemistry lesson when that's something called uh, acid jazz came along. I didn't know what, I didn't know what that was, but uh, marketing and genre and all that stuff was part of marketing and stuff. But it was really just a feeling. And even Miles, you know, he went when he had his uh, band, he went into experimenting some of those things, you know. Yeah. So, so it's just a, music, the setting in which you have creativity. Uh, should not be within a certain framework, you know. How much were you guys influenced and inspired by what uh, James Brown and Sly Stone was starting to do in the late 60s and changing the music into funk? I mean, were you guys all telling each other, wow, that's that's happening? You know, we ought to like... Well, I think we were more inspired by James Brown than uh, Sly Stone, but all of those people we would listen to because of the pulsation and that was before the click track. And particularly James Brown, he said, one, if you can't find one, 
get you another job. One, two, three, and four, and one. Make sure the one is strong. And we laughed about it. So we knew that that was one of the basics of, uh, of uh, jazz anyway. The first down, we call it downbeat, which is the, you know, the downbeat. And so that was very emphatic for James Brown with all the musicians in the band, you know? And so that was one of our, I won't say our influence, influences, but we related to that. And that became part of what we did. Even if we played a, 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 a like you call a funky tune or a groove tune, we want to make sure that the one was there. If even if it was repetitive every other two bars or whatever it is, that was important. What about like a group like the Meters? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't recall them that much. They were from New Orleans and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, I just recorded a song that uh, Joe had uh, just composed for, before he departed. Uh, our planet, and uh, he sent it to me in the rough form, and then and I went in just just recorded. It's coming out on a funk record, which is after this record that I'm doing now, which has no relation to what my legacy is, which is called an orchestral record. Which I don't know if you heard about that. Yeah, but, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. It's sort of like a world. Uh, oh yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get yeah. into that for sure. Yeah, we'll, but the we'll... funk, the funk record. Joe sent me a thing, and I took some musician in the studio. And I mean, you could smell the groove on it. I mean, it was <laughs> so uh, he and uh, his uh, uh, <clears throat> widow Yolanda is very excited about that. But he sent it to me in a form which could not be done with filing. And so we had to, I had to record it with other musicians and put the Joe thing on it, you know, and, a, and hired a couple of musicians and pianists and all that stuff. So when you come out, you'll, you'll, you'll hear it. And I'll be dedicating that in the liner notes. Wow, can't wait for that. Mm -hmm. um, you guys backed up uh, Shuggy Otis in the uh, like 1972. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did that come to be? I don't know how. I just I have to think. It might have just been a gig that we were offered the gig to 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 to, to work with him. You know, I, I can't remember that. That's a, something that did happen in the past, and uh, and I never looked at us uh, as a backup band. I looked at us as a collaborative situation with other artists, you know. Uh, but when you use the term backup, I, I guess that's probably why I was reluctant to kind of say we backed up Jack Sugar. Well, yeah, you were his band on that record, so. Yeah, well, that's what, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. like we did a thing with Bill Withers. Uh, uh, did you hear that about Soul Shadows? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that was okay, yeah. 10 years later, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, yeah. I love Soul Shadows, that's great. Yeah. I love Bill Withers. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, he he became good friend. I don't know whether I'm a jinx or something, but about a month before he departed, he came to visit me in California, and we had some some sushi together. And he said, "I just went to see you and say hello." And and I was really shocked when he was gone about a month or so later. You know? uh, but, wow! But that Soul Shadows record that was a lot of fun. I mean, but that was written by the same guy who wrote Street Life. He and Joe Will Jennings. Yeah, of course. Um Getting ahead of myself a little bit. I did want to, well, before we went on the air, I shared with you that my, my favorite album when I came in the picture is those Southern Nights. Okay. And I don't know if you're aware that this is out there, but I'm going to show it to viewers because it's such a great combination of five of those 1970s albums in one mm -hmm. package. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, those Southern Nights, I mean, it looks, even on the cover, it looks like you guys were having a great time doing that photo shoot. Clannon oh yeah, we, all, we always had fun even doing the cover shoots and you would notice, as a matter of fact, uh, You'll see one of them where we were on the beach. Did you see that 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 picture of? Uh, yeah, that's. Um, I forget the name. Uh, her, uh, 
but we were all in pops popwell was falling down and larry carton was on this cover and we were dressed in cost not covers that costumes like knights or something or yeah yeah but we always we, uh, music to us was an experience of what the, the moment was and what we were trying to express on that particular uh, uh record uh recording you know and uh those southern nights that was kind of a, a play on words you know mm -hmm. uh because and the nights in the south weren't, weren't necessarily a, a fun thing because there was some serious mosquitoes might attack you you know <laughs> but uh we had a lot of fun and those tunes were typical. Um, and I re-recorded on the next funk record, one of my tunes called Papa Hooper's uh, Ho um, Groove and Greasy Spoon, you know, so. But all of that, that, that association was with our roots. And, and we could not get past that, uh, even when we were playing hardcore string, straight, straight ahead jazz, because the, the roots were so strong. And I always share to people, everything has to have roots what it is, you know. And uh, you can't leave your roots and just say, I'm gonna do something different because it's in your soul anyway, you know, even though we were doing things maybe a little bit more harmonically sophisticated or stretched out, you know, all those things. But even if we were playing a song of India, it had a funky groove on it. Do you yeah. remember hearing that? You know? Yeah, well, that's what like these albums, you know, when I go back and listen to them now, especially every one of them to me, is so strong sticks, it's like, Every one of them seems like it's a greatest hits collection. You know, oh, that's well, how strong they are. Well, see, but you saying that, that didn't manifest itself in the quote-unquote music industry, the big I word, because it, it, there's imagery that goes along with certain things, and I won't get into divulgent all that information, I'll talk about it. But it's, it's really unfortunate. As a matter of fact, speaking of the music industry, street life wouldn't have even come out if I wouldn't have literally almost figuratively stand on the table and say, we need to put this record out as is, speaking on behalf of the band, because it had a rubato introduction, if you know what I mean, a rubato. The, you, with no group. Right, slow, it's got a down-tempo slow beginning. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, it's just like, like string. So, and before the groove came in, said, no, this gotta be, this gotta start on the groove, you know, and I'm not gonna call the, the, the executive that was really adamant that that was just not gonna come out. So finally it came out with, uh, that I kept pushing for it with, and it was an 11 minute track, but it was one of the biggest records in the world, you know, and uh, with the rubato, because that's another thing I always, it's a point not necessarily to ponder. I, I felt strongly about uh, doing what you believe in. And you know, the, the best success uh, is made by getting a failure and then find, trying it the next time, you know? So that's what I did. And I, I'm very proud of that, that, that record, uh, Street Life, which was so, so huge around the world. How, how, people, did, how, how did you get connected with Randy Crawford? That's another story. Originally, that record was supposed to be done by Nancy Wilson. And uh, John Levy said Nancy was not available and not feeling well. So he, um, I think he recommended us to listen to, to Randy Crawford. And uh, she had not been working in that genre very much. So it took a little time for us to get her to sing within that mode, you know. Not that she was a bad singer, you know, but she had been doing a, a, a much more, use that term, funkier thing, Bootsy Collins kind of, I don't know what she was doing, you know, but uh, we had to get the record done and we needed a vocal. And, and so John Levy, who was uh, Nancy's manager say, 
try her and we, we did and we worked with her and that's how she got involved with the record. And I think it kind of co-launched her career to a degree, you know, in another direction. Not that she would have been a failure in that sense. Were, were you and the guys in the group surprised at the success that that achieved? Oh, yes, we were, because we knew that there was going to be some uh, concern about the rubato and the string and the whole thing, because we're not, we weren't greasy funky from the beginning. We knew that. But like I say, you want to exploit what's feeling at the moment, you know what I mean? And we were saying, well, maybe, but we felt confident that it was a strong lyric and a strong groove that I hopefully I played on and that they played the groove and Joe locked it in. And so we were, we were, we weren't like totally, totally surprised, but we didn't know that the level of, 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 of success it was gonna be. But what, what inspired you to have that departure of going with a vocalist performance, you know, after so many instrumental records? Uh, well, you know, we had done the, uh, had we done the Soul Shadows prior to that? That we that came after. Oh, yeah, that's that's interesting too. Um, I think part of it was a collaborative thing uh, with Will Jennings. And when did we do the the Midnight Believer? Where we produced some BB King? See, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to get the the time frame. Uh, the BB King record was, uh, I think, also after. So uh, yes. Street, Life, Street Life was '79. And so we, so we, yeah, okay. So we probably that's a good. I have to think. I think it was the, the influence of, of Will Jennings, who uh, was a good writer and he was another Texas boy, we call him, you know. And uh, I think, I'm not that I think about it, I think that might have given us more room to, to want to do that. But we had already done some kind of halfway group feeling with uh, keep that same old feeling, you know, where there was a little bit of, but not as a featured vocalist. And, and back to what you said about Sugar, we had backed up people. I don't know how late that was. We literally did a, uh, a record with Nancy Wilson, where we literally backed her. I'm trying to think of that. I have to think of the, the record on that. So we were always in tune to vocalists, you know, but but to answer your question more specifically and hopefully shorter, shorter uh, that I believe the inspiration kind of came with a collaboration and an appreciation and a respect for Will Jennings, who's a great writer. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.